0: Thank you for listening to the official podcast of Canyon Creek Baptist Church, where our goal is to know Jesus and make Jesus known. To learn more about Canyon Creek, visit us online at creekfamily.org. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Josh Murray. All right, well, good morning, church family. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Hey, it's good to see you. I want to welcome you to Cannon Creek. I also want to welcome those who are joining us online from home for our live stream service. We're glad that you're tuning in uh, today for the fourth week of this message series that we're in called One Another. And I'm excited about this week because this is probably the most practical of, of all of these. You know, we started three weeks ago and we talked about these two big foundational truths that we are loved by God and that we can love others. And I just want to keep driving that home each and every week that we're here, regardless of what you've heard or what you've experienced in your life. Those things are true that you are loved by God and that you are capable of loving others. And then we continued uh, and we began to lay the foundation for what love really is. And we found that, that ultimate example of God's love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then last week we took a look at an example of Jesus loving someone who was unlovable, this demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, and we talked about how to love people like Jesus or how to love people Jesus-style. And today we're gonna take a look at another passage of Scripture that to me is like a a toolbox, all right, full of tools that we can use in our lives to love people. I just wanna remind you with this sort of opening thing that I've said every week, and it's this. If you want to simplify your life Okay, it's not going to be found in anything external, all right? It's not going to be found on the beach. It's not going to be found in getting rid of everything in your house. It's not going to be found in retirement. None of those things will ultimately simplify your life. And the reason being is because we are the ones who make life so complicated, all right? We complicate life by making it all about things that it was never really meant to be about, all right? So if you want to live a simple life, it's got to be about the most basic commandment of God in scripture, and that's love, all right? So instead of chasing all of the potential objectives and goals and making that our purpose and trying everything to become, you know, just everything to everyone, we just need to go back to the basics. And what we find there is the central command to love God and love people, all right? We need to wake up in the morning and ask ourselves, what's the most loving way I can live my life today? How can I handle this relationship in a loving way? How can I handle this situation in a loving way? How can I handle this interaction in a loving way? What's the most loving thing I can do with my time today? What's the most loving decision I can make? I promise you this. If you just commit yourself okay, to loving God and loving people, life is going to get simple. And it's not just going to get simple. It's also going to get Powerful. And it's powerful because when we start to give the world around us a hint of what God's love is really like, and that's love, it makes a difference. All right. So today we're going to take a look at this passage in Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can meet me there, Romans chapter 12. But Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, and it's probably his biggest theological work. Right? It's, it's long, it's a 16-chapter theological framework, and I think it's one of the greatest letters in the New Testament in terms of all of the, the different subject matter that it covers. And the first half of the book of Romans is very doctrinal. Right? So Paul writes this, and he's laying a foundation of doctrine, he's laying a foundation of truth, and then about halfway through the book, he starts to get very practical, About halfway through, he says, okay, in light of all of this doctrine that we've just talked about, or in light of all of this truth, now we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about how we should live. We're going to talk about how we can live our lives as a living sacrifice for God, and that's what this passage is called. In light of everything that I've just shared, Paul says, in these first chapters, let's now talk about purpose. Let's not now talk about how we walk this out, how we live this out, so he opens this chapter, Romans chapter 12, by talking about our purpose in life and living as a living sacrifice, as he calls it, for God and what that's all about. And then he shifts gears and he goes into this. We're going to start reading in verse 9, and we're going to read from the, the New Living Translation today because we're talking about simplicity, and they made this very simple for us. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. This is what Paul says. He says, don't just pretend to love others, Okay really love them. He says, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. He says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble and keep on praying. He says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. He says, never pay back evil with more evil, but do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. He says, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God for the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. He says, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil By doing good. All right? Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, these are just two paragraphs. And I love what Paul says and and how he lays out this section of, of Romans chapter 12. Like I said, at the beginning of the chapter, he takes a few minutes and he talks about these spiritual gifts. And we didn't read that part of the passage, but it's a passage that mirrors the passage that we read from Corinthians just a few weeks ago, where Paul says, you can have prophecy, you can have tongues, you can have knowledge, all these gifts, but if you don't have love, they're worthless, all right? So at the beginning of of Romans 12, Paul is sort of mirroring that passage and referencing that passage and saying that you can live your life as a living sacrifice to God. You can give everything you have back to him. You can use your gifts to serve him. But then when he gets to verse 9, he goes back again to this core idea of love. All right, And in these, these verses that we just read, Paul's giving us great examples of how we can live a life of love, and he introduces it in verse 9 by saying, Don't just pretend, right? Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. And then he gives us a list of tools. So today, we're gonna walk through this passage just little by little, and we're gonna answer the question How do I practically love people? Or how do I live this out? How do I really begin to do this? And it's very important that we answer this question today because I don't want us to leave here and think, yeah, I really wanna love people, but I'm still not really sure how to do that, right? How do I live that out? How do I apply this? So I wanna take this passage and sort of treat it like a list of tools that God has given us to love people. And we're gonna break it down into smaller pieces and there are 12 tools that Paul references in these verses and we need to start using them to love people, all right? Now, 12 tools means 12 points, All right, so you got to stick with me this morning. All right, I promise we'll be out of here by 3.30, all right? I'm just kidding. Here's the first tool Paul illustrates. The first one is authenticity. Look again at what he said in verse nine. He said, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. The reality is if you pretend to love others, it's not really love at all, right? There has to be a sense of sincerity about our love, There has to be a sense of authenticity about our love. If we're going to really love people, as Paul said, there has to be this, this openness and this honesty about who I really am. In other words, if I'm loving you, I'm not giving you a false version of myself. I'm not pretending to be something that I'm not. I'm not just trying to impress you. I'm not trying to win you over. I'm not trying to be better than you or smarter than you or, or more right than you. Instead, I'm just being authentic and I'm putting myself second and I'm letting you see who I really am. And I think as followers of Jesus, authenticity should be one of our core values. We should keep it real and we should fight hard against fake. And the reason that we have to fight so hard against fake is because fake is our default, right? In other words, wearing a mask is naturally what we tend to do. It takes intentionality and effort to take the mask off and be real with people. But if you really want to love people, you're going to have to be real. You don't have to immediately begin to compete for first place when you're talking to them. You don't have to be the alpha. You don't have to be above everyone else. You don't have to prove yourself. You just have to be real. Now, I want us to be very careful not to confuse this idea of authenticity with transparency, right? Authenticity does not necessarily equal transparency. Transparency is a little different. Transparency is sharing everything and holding nothing back, right? And we all need some people in our lives that we can be fully transparent with. They know all the details, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But if I posted all of that on Facebook, someone would probably comment like TMI, right? You need some people in your life that you can be fully transparent with, but you don't have to be fully transparent with everyone. For example, when you're checking out at HEB and the cashier says, did you find everything that you need today? You don't have to say yes, but I'm really struggling with self-esteem. All right. You don't have to do that. That is not what I mean by authenticity. Authenticity. You don't have to overwhelm everyone with the details of your life. Transparency does not equal authenticity and transparency isn't the goal with everyone, all right? Yes, you need people that you can be transparent with, but authenticity simply means that even if you don't know all of the details of my life, who you're seeing right now is who I really am, all right? And it's hard to love people when you're faking it. It's hard to form a relationship with someone when you're pretending to be someone else. We have to be real. We have to be authentic. We have to take the mask off. We don't have to compete. We don't have to prove ourselves. You don't have to enter every interaction armed with immense confidence. Just be you, all right? Just be authentic. Ask yourself, is this who I really am? Here's the next tool Paul references. It's discernment, all right? If we look again at verse nine, he says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. And then he gives us this. He says, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. All right. Discernment. Now we have to tread very carefully with this one because we've taken this phrase, hate what is wrong, and we've twisted it a little bit. We've taken this phrase, hate what is wrong, and we've abused it a little bit. We've taken this phrase, hate what is wrong, and we've used it to justify behavior that is not Christ-like. All right. And I'll be very honest with you. One of my least favorite sentences of all time is this one. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Has anybody ever heard that before? Yeah. Love the sinner, hate the sin. And the reason why I don't like that sentence is because it sounds really good in theory, right? But we don't live it out very well. We drop that little bomb and we say, well, I love you, but I hate everything about you, right? And that doesn't come across very loving, but we say it because we make sure that we sound right. We assert that thought. I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. In other words, I hate everything you do, but I guess I still love you, right? You know what that is? That's, that's called lip service, all right? And I don't think that that's what Paul was really getting at here. I don't think Paul was saying that we should act loving, but hate the parts of the people that we don't really agree with. I think he was talking about loving while exercising discernment. We need to love people, but we also need to be able to discern the things in their lives that will end up hurting them. And for us to just keep affirming those things and ignoring those things in order to maintain a friendship with this person, that's not really love, all right? When I see something that I know could hurt someone that I love or when I see something that I know might pull them away from God, it should not manifest an attitude of hatred within me, but it should manifest some concern for that person. Does that make sense? Thank you. (laughs) Let me try to explain the difference for you. If we look at someone's life and we think, love the sinner, hate the sin, what we're really doing is making sure we say the correct thing about their behavior. All right? But our concern should not be that we are correct, our concern should be that they are okay. So when you say love the sin or hate the sin, are you concerned about whether or not you're right or are you concerned about whether or not they're okay? If you're concerned about whether or not you're right, you're not acting in love, you're acting in judgment. You're acting in superiority. You're acting in self-righteousness. But if you're genuinely concerned and you want what's best for the person and you're willing to put their best interest above your best interest and approach it in love, that requires discernment. So when we have someone in our life who's doing something that we don't necessarily agree with, rather than hating their sin, we need to love them back to Jesus. Does that make sense? When someone around us is doing something that's hurtful and destructive, we need to lovingly approach it and handle it with truth. Hating the sin doesn't do any good. Loving the person does, all right? And we point them back to God who created them and loves them. But we can only do that when we're seeking their health, their holiness, and their happiness above our need to hate the sin, all right? Here's the third one. Are you still with me this morning? Affection. Verse 10, Paul says, love each other with genuine affection, all right? Now, affection is something that Paul talks about repeatedly throughout his letters in the New Testament. And we have to understand that there are some cultural differences When it comes to affection, all right? For example, during the New Testament era that Paul was writing in, it was very common to greet someone with a kiss, all right? Now that's not something that we do very often anymore, right? When you walked into church this morning, I hope that no one greeted you with a kiss, all right? If they did, I'd love for you to let me know about that. But in the New Testament, when it talks about affection, okay? It almost always has to do with touch. And through our very broken lens, that makes us very uncomfortable. It makes us think of something inappropriate. For some people, it makes them think of something that they do everything to stay away from, right? For some people, it makes them think of something that they want less of in their lives. But genuine affection in the New Testament really meant that there was a meaningful touch, all right? Now, that could be a handshake. It could be a pat on the back. It could be a hug. Different people are comfortable with different things. Some people are natural huggers, and they want to hug everyone. Other people leave when we start hugging each other. All right? But the reality is, Jesus often loved people in very intimate ways. Okay? Now, intimate doesn't necessarily mean sexual. Okay. But when the blind man came to Jesus... How did Jesus heal him? He spit in the mud and grabbed that muddy spit and rubbed it in the man's eyes. That's intimate. That's personal, right? That's up close and personal. When God created Adam, the Bible says he scooped him up out of the clay and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. That's intimate. That's personal, Affection is meaningful touch, all right? Here's the next one, number four, honor. If we look at the second half of that same verse, he says, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. This is another word that isn't very commonly used in our culture, but it was used a lot in scripture. It was used a lot in biblical times. It was used a lot in ancient cultures, but it's not a word that we use very frequently in America Today. But honor, what the the kind of honor that they were talking about here is essentially speaking well of someone. It's essentially affirming someone, not necessarily because they deserve it and they're in a position of authority, but because we're honoring them anyway. It's about putting others first. Hey, I want you to receive the honor here. I want you to get the credit. I want you to be recognized. Other translations translate this verse. And they say, outdo one another in showing honor. It's simply about laying our preference down and putting someone else first. Does that make sense? Here's number five, enthusiasm. How do we love people? With enthusiasm. Verse 11, Paul says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. All right? This verse always reminds me of Colossians chapter three, where Paul says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it with all of your heart because you're serving God and not people. All right? Paul's essentially saying, when you live a life of love, you have to commit to doing it enthusiastically. You have to give it your all. You have to give it your energy. You have to give it your best. And there may be times that you think, I don't really want to do this today. And in those moments, I would challenge you to choose enthusiasm because it's going to mean the world to someone else, all right? Here's the next one. We're halfway there. Number six, patience. And this is an easy one, so we're just gonna skip right over it, right? Verse 12, he says, rejoice in our confident hope be patient in trouble and keep on praying, all right? These three phases combined, phrases combined tell me we're going home someday and it's going to be all right, all right? We hope in that, we're confident in that, but until then, the Bible says we're gonna suffer. We're going to experience trials. We're gonna walk through some difficulty, and Paul tells us in trouble to be patient and to keep on praying, and that's exactly what love does, right? As we walk through the circumstances of life with other people, there's going to be some waiting involved. There's going to be some suffering involved. We're going to suffer alongside one another. So when someone we love is going through some suffering, instead of looking for the escape hatch, we need to be patient and suffer with them, all right? This is where we embrace the mess. This is where we get involved. This is where we practice patience together. All right. Now, remember, if you're asking God to make you more patient, he's going to put you in some situations that will require you to be patient. So if you want to grow in the area of patience, it's going to come in the form of challenging situations that require patience. But the loving thing to do is to wait and be patient with someone. That is how we walk with people through their suffering. Sometimes it means giving counsel, yes. Sometimes it means lending a helping hand. Sometimes it means giving good advice. Other times, it's just patiently sitting silently, right? I love the story of Job in the Old Testament. And Job experienced some insane amount of suffering during his life on earth. And at one point, three of Job's friends come along And they're with Job day after day after day. But they did not say anything. They were silent, right? They were just there with him until one day they all opened their mouths and explained everything they'd been feeling. And what did Job say? He said, you're all miserable comforters to me, right? I liked it better when you were quiet, right? Can we just go back to that? So patience is sometimes... Just going through something with someone. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to fix everything. Just go through it with them, all right? And if you think about it, that's exactly what God does with us. We ask God, why aren't you fixing all of my problems? God, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why are you allowing this to happen? And I don't really have the answer. I don't know why. God doesn't end certain forms of suffering, but here's what I do know. He came down here and he suffered with us. He came down here and he demonstrated patience and that patience took him all the way to his death on a cross and his resurrection for our eternal life. Be patient with people. The seventh tool is generosity. The first part of verse 13, Paul says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. When you read about the early church in the book of Acts, the early church operated in what I would call a system of voluntary socialism, all right? And I wanna be very careful using that word because I'm not advocating socialism in the way we define socialism today, but if you think about the early church, They embraced a system that was sort of voluntary socialism, right? In other words, when there was a need within the body, the rest of the body met that need. They shared what they had. And that culture was built into the life of the entire New Testament church. But it requires generosity in order for us to love like that. And I'm not going to stand here today and say that we should all leave here and sell our stuff and empty our bank accounts and bring it all to the church. It's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying, however, is that we should develop an attitude of generosity. We should look for ways that we can meet practical needs. I've heard it said like this before. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. All throughout scripture, God generously provides and pours out everything that we need and he wants us to develop that same attitude of generosity. All right? I don't think it's possible for you to love and be stingy at the same time. All right? Next tool, number eight, hospitality. Verse 13, he says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them and always be eager to practice hospitality. Now, when we think of hospitality, the first thing that probably comes to mind is the hospitality industry, right? We think of restaurants and hotels and resorts, but Paul was talking about this in a very social sense. And he wasn't just talking about having people over for dinner or for game night, all right? They took it a step further. There was a cultural mandate for the people living in Jerusalem during the New Testament era, and they would literally open their homes to anyone who needed a place to stay. So if someone came along at 1130 in the evening and knocked on their door, I need a bed. There was this sort of expectation that this was safe and it was non-threatening, right? Someone just needed a bed and people would open their homes to them. All right, hospitality is is more than a scenario. It's an attitude. Sometimes it's about opening your home. Sometimes it's about opening your life and making room for people, all right? But hospitality is a way that we show love. Here's the ninth one. Are you still with me this morning? Number nine is blessing. Verse 14, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them think this is another word that we overlook in our culture today. Now we use it when someone sneezes, right? We say, bless you the first time. If they sneeze again, we kind of just turn the other way, right? (laughs) But throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, a blessing was a very meaningful moment when someone would pass something on to someone else. Sometimes it was words Sometimes it was something physical. It was typically a grandfather or a father passing on a blessing to his children, to his grandchildren. He would sit down with them. He would give them some meaningful, affectionate touch. He would share words of affirmation with them. He would portray great things for their future, let them know that they're going places. And he would say something like, I really believe that God has big things in store for you. He's got a big plan for your life. A blessing is simply something that we pass on to others. Most often through our words, all right? So we should go into interactions with other people asking ourselves, how can I bless this person? How can I make this person's day better? And Paul takes it a step further than what we're probably comfortable with. He takes this idea of blessing to a place that is very uncomfortable for us. He says, bless those who persecute you. In other words, he's saying, bless those who aren't going to bless you back. Paul's setting an example for us and he's teaching us that we can love people by blessing them, even when they haven't blessed us. All right. Number 10 is empathy. And he gives us a beautiful picture of what empathy is in verse 15. He says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Now we often see this verse in the context of weddings or funerals, right? A wedding is a place where we're happy with those who are happy, hopefully. And a funeral is a place where we weep with those who weep. But this kind of empathy can be applied to all different kinds of scenarios in life. When someone is rejoicing, we're gonna come alongside them and we're going to rejoice with them. And that right there is the death of envy. When you're able to to come alongside and rejoice with someone who's rejoicing, that is where envy dies because it's impossible for us to be envious and rejoice with those who rejoice, right? We have to say, hey, I'm happy for you and what you've accomplished, even if I haven't accomplished it. We have to say, hey, I'm happy for you and what you're able to enjoy, even if I don't get to enjoy it for myself. Empathy means that we're coming alongside someone and we're identifying with their feelings, whether it's rejoicing or weeping. We're there for the good, the bad, and everything in between. That's empathy, all right? The 11th tool is harmony. Verse 16, Paul says, live in harmony with each other. Now, harmony does not mean uniformity. Harmony does not mean that everyone is exactly the same. Harmony actually means different people come along together and get along well. Does that make sense? And in order to experience harmony, we have to be able to celebrate our differences. In order to experience harmony, we have to decide that we're going to get along regardless of the differences that lie between us. And the thing about love is love seeks harmony. Love asks, I know we're very different But how can we get along anyway? How can we work together? Love reaches out to people who are different and includes them, all right? And finally, the last one, and Paul saved the best for last, humility. Verse 16, he says, live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud, I love this, to enjoy the company of ordinary people. He says, and don't think you know it all. I love it. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. The problem is we do the opposite of this without even realizing it. We make certain assessments about people. We make certain judgments about people. I literally met someone this week and I met so many people this week, so this person's not gonna know. But when I left this meeting, what I thought as I got in my truck was, well, I can tell that I'm never gonna be friends with them, right? (laughs) I was like, that's not loving. (laughs) You're not doing this right, all right? But we do that. We make assessments about people. We make judgments about people. We have this image in our minds, and I'm so guilty of this, all right? We have this image in our minds of how we think people should be, and we decide that we aren't going to associate with people who don't fit the mold, all right? But that's not what Jesus did. He was the king of kings, He was the Lord of Lords. He was God who created everything in the flesh. And when his very poor earthly mother and father went in Jerusalem looking for a room, they couldn't find one. So he was born in a stable and he spent his life hanging out with lepers and prostitutes. That's Jesus. And when we make the decision to follow him, we have to agree with him that we are no better than anyone else. Following Jesus requires love and love requires humility. We don't have to be better than anyone else. We don't have to outrun anyone else. Paul says, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. The funny thing is, I don't think I've ever met an ordinary person. But the point that I think Paul is trying to make is this and that's the, the ground. Is level at the foot of the cross. And that at the end of the day, the Bible is perfectly clear that every single one of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Social status doesn't give us an advantage. Privilege doesn't give us an advantage. Money does not give us an advantage. We have to come before God completely empty and totally dependent on the blood of Jesus to be saved. That's how it is. So we need to start believing that I'm better than no one. We're all just recipients of God's grace. And if we want other people to experience that same grace, we need to replace the tools in our tool bag because I really believe that if we figure this out, if we put these tools to work in our lives, the world around us will be different because of it. When the church is filled with a bunch of people becoming love, okay, instead of becoming judgmental, instead of becoming correct, instead of becoming self-righteous, listen, none of that impresses anyone. But I can promise you that people will be impressed by a church full of people who are becoming love. And when they see us, they'll see Jesus. Because when I look at this list of tools, I see Jesus. Authenticity, discernment, affection, honor, enthusiasm, patience, generosity, hospitality, blessing, empathy, harmony, humility. I see Jesus in every single one of those things. So this isn't necessarily a challenge to go out and and do better and be better. The challenge is to come to Jesus and receive him for who he is and become more like him. And all of these tools are at our disposal. And as soon as we start carrying them with us and as soon as we start putting them to use, I believe the world around us is going to be different. But first, we have to remove some of the bad tools from our toolbox. The reality is our toolbox can be filled with some pretty destructive things. So we need to start with this. We need to embrace and embody the love of Jesus. He patiently endured all the way to the cross. He gave his life for us. But three days later, he rose from the grave and now he's in heaven preparing a place for us. He's gathering a family and he wants us to be agents of his grace and his love for people. And it's simple, love God, love people, all right? Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much again This week for your perfect love for us. We pray, God, that you would empower each and every one of us to take these tools that you've given us and use them, Father, to embody your love to the world around us. Use us, God, to make a difference in the world around us with your love. Help us in each of these areas. God, make us more authentic. Give us discernment. Make us affectionate. Help us To show honor. Make us enthusiastic. Give us patience. Make us generous. Make us hospitable. Use us to to bless others. Make us empathetic to others' feelings. Help us to live in harmony. And humble us, Father. We pray that your perfect love would be reflected in each and every one of our lives with heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment today. Maybe you're here in this place, maybe you're watching online and you still are feeling like love is just a long shot for you because you haven't come to fully know and understand the love that God has for you. We find such hope in the gospel and the message of the gospel is this, that Jesus lived the life that you could not live. We all fall short, we're all broken, we're all sinful, but Jesus came and he suffered with us and he lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we deserve to die because the wages of our sin is death. Sins against God who is eternal bring punishments that are eternal. And we were destined to pay that debt, but Jesus stepped in our place and he paid the penalty for our sin and died the death that we deserve to die. But then he rose from the grave to give us new life. And when you call on his name, he'll save you. He'll restore you. He'll make you new again, both now and one day in his eternal never ending presence. That's the message of the gospel. And if that's you today and you want to respond to that, you want to place your faith and your trust in Jesus, I just want to encourage you to pray this simple prayer with me this morning, church. Let's make this our prayer together. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm asking you to forgive me today. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead so that I could be saved. So today I turn away from my sin and I invite you to come into my heart and into my life so that I can know you and trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. I give it all to you today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You've been listening to the official podcast of Canyon Creek Baptist Church. If you made a decision to commit your life to Jesus or would like to get connected with Canyon Creek, visit us online at creekfamily.org forward slash connect and fill out a Connect card. Thanks again for joining us.